Welcome to Generously Speaking, a podcast series developed by Capital Development Services, where we hear from area philanthropists, foundation executives, corporate leaders, and others who share their experience, insights, and ideas on the nature of generosity and philanthropic giving. Here are your hosts, Alan Burroughs and Claire Jordan. In our work, we have the privilege of meeting some pretty incredible people. This podcast provides a platform to share some of the conversations we get to have with a broader audience, bringing thought leaders in the nonprofit sector directly to you, since you cannot always come to them. We want to highlight generosity by speaking with those who can help share your stories of great philanthropy. In addition to the audio on our podcast recording, you can also access episode notes of these conversations on our website at capdev.com slash podcasts. Today, we continue our discussion on building nonprofit capacity. Please be sure to listen to part one regarding staffing capacity. In this episode, we focus more on a nonprofit's database and donor relations, what we at CapDev call high-tech and high-touch. Once again, here is Claire Jordan speaking with Jamie Rayner, Vice Chancellor for Advancement at Western Carolina University, and Nelda Simeon, Director of Philanthropy at the Nature Conservancy North Carolina Chapter. Let's talk a little bit more about communications then as the other element that we sort of touched on throughout this recording today that's important to building up the infrastructure for a campaign. And there are so many tools involved when we talk about good communications for a campaign. I think about everything from the mass emails that we send out to what's on our email signature to how easily accessible we are. Can you find your phone number easily um, either on a website or in an email if someone wants to call you as a, a development professional? I think all those elements are so important. It's not just the printed materials that we tend to think of what's in print. It is very much the online presence and our social media presence. All those things are driven by participation interest. As an English major, I have to say, I think the writing is important, but I also have to recognize that people don't read as much as they used to. So we have to be concise and we have to be attractive and graphic design is such a huge component of all that. Can you talk a little bit about the development of communications and tools and materials that you used in the campaign? I'm fortunate. I, I work with really skilled colleagues and I couldn't be prouder of the materials that we use. I do hear what you were saying about brevity and uh, measured communications. At the Nature Conservancy, a lot of the sort of large direct mail, mass mail is handled centrally. Here in North Carolina, the fundraisers work with a smaller portfolio of people that they're communicating with. We, of course, have nature to work with. So to begin, have the beauty of nature and wonderful photography. It's actually one of the ways we also engage people. We've had Mm -hmm. photo contests and volunteers. Some of our donors supply and share photos that they've taken in the locations where we do work. And we use that. So there's an exchange going on there. But we have a newsletter we communicate that's beautifully done, communicating regularly to all of our donors in North Carolina, very focused on the work that we're doing here. And I believe our donors actually do read it, partly because it's written so well. It's easily understandable. We do use a lot of graphics and visuals. And as much as we do online and all kinds of other digital communications, a lot of our base still actually enjoys being able to put their feet up, 
grab it from the coffee table and take a look and actually read something. Not everyone. And so we also honor that with donors that don't. But no, I, you are right. And I'm smiling because I completely um, agree and can see, I can visualize the people in my family who do exactly that for the Nature Conservancy, who keep your materials at, on the coffee table. There are lots of them in my family who I see this often. And because they are attractive, but also because they care so much, they do want to read and absorb every bit of what you're doing. So what you're saying there is, you know, your donor audience, the donor audience for some other organizations may be different and they have to recognize where theirs is and how much they communicate, how frequently, how in depth the communications are, how much graphic they are versus how much text. I mean, all those questions we have to really consider and there is no one size fits all in the communications world. You know, we're analyzing that now. We send um, a digital communication every couple of months with sort of newest, most important. So it's not, it doesn't have a schedule, except that we look at important information to know about conservation. Recently, our legislature made some wonderful decisions that also promote conservation. It was important to us. We work hard to educate them. Being able to write about that in the moment that that is taking place is important. We've had large gifts come to us basically from our online presence, someone being just taken away with a program or a project that we're working on and literally getting a phone call saying, I read this article and this is something I'd like to support. So we try very hard to adjust it and calibrate it to our audience. And that's actually sort of rolls back into data. If your database can help you understand what types and kinds of communications or who doesn't want paper. And of course, we, you know, in conservation, we have many donors mm, who are very yeah. particular about that. Mm-hmm. And surveys help with that. And then touching back on that point about social media leading to gifts, I really think we've seen more of that maybe in the land trust world than anywhere else. We've heard that from a number of clients, especially where they're specifically public policy related issues, where they've been advocates and they recognize and they see my gift makes a big difference. It's important that in social media being the vehicle that conveys that messaging that inspires the giving, not necessarily the vehicle, the tool to make the gift, but recognize the difference, the distinction, social media providing the messaging that inspires the gift. The story. Exactly. The story. I remember probably a decade ago, in my mind, you could never over communicate. And I think that is critical for your team. But I do believe you can over communicate with your constituents to the point to where everything is noise. I've really changed my philosophy on communications, particularly to the work of advancement, um, where it was post that on social media, send that email out, get that e-newsletter going, um, go, 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 here's a group text, uh, you know, an email. I think it's much more impactful to have structured, consistent, but limited communication. If you want them to pay attention, make sure you're giving them something to pay attention to. So remove the noise as much as possible. Focus on the top tier things that you need for them to know, whether they're campaign related, whether they're um, holistic to your organization, and really be intentional about what you are sending to your constituents. I think that's a really important point. We talk about it in these two words, relevancy and urgency. Absolutely. Focus there, live there, do what has to be said and And, get that out. And do that well. Those pieces however little or, or as much as they are, do it well. 
point is people don't read a whole lot of stuff. We put too much out there. It's noisy out there. It's busy. <laughs> I want to go back to something else you said earlier too, about how are you using this post intense COVID time to use virtual tools to share, not just photography, but tours and donor visits. Tell me what you all have done to adapt your style and communications for donor visits in that way. For me, it's been amazing. I think we went into COVID really terrified about our ability to interact with donors and to do our work in the field. And actually, we've managed to continue almost all of our work, some of it a bit more complex, of course. Virtual programs for us have really been eye-opening. You know, we don't have a campus that you can come to or a hospital or a church. Our work takes place across the state and we conserve hundreds of thousands of acres, but we also turn over much of that land to other organizations, to the state, to the National Forest Service. Helping people see our work on the ground has been important and we used to, and we still do, organize hikes and visits to preserves and to locations where people can actually understand exactly what we're talking about in that newsletter they just received. I've been on lots of those. I love them. During this pandemic, we have worked closely with our conservation team to put together instructive, sort of informal conversations with small groups of donors. So although we could do a seminar and invite thousands of people, we don't. We are trying to create a real conversation, a place for people where they can hear information, and then maybe ask a question and discussion. And those have been remarkably successful and really well done. And it's, it's a collaboration of a variety of people in communications, in conservation, operational staff to make sure uh, everything's going out, the fundraisers to generate the invitation lists. And then the media we're using is talking heads, but it's also slides, photographs, sometimes it's a diagram, and occasionally we're able to uh, show a little bit of video and drone footage. And it brings places alive And for us, the thing that we've discovered is that as wonderful as it is to be out in the field and to have meetings, not all of our donors were ever able to attend all of those. Um, You know, you schedule things and, you know, it could be a long distance to drive, but it also just might be the date that doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. We're able to do these communications They're well attended. And then if you couldn't attend, we'll send you the recording afterwards. And it's really been just amazing. And we have expanded our reach and we can tie some of the support that we've gotten directly to that kind of interaction. So as we get out into the field more now in whatever our new normal is, we are very much engaging with others safely still, but we don't intend to let go of the virtual It's been really a terrific tool. You know, I think the intimate setting you're describing is probably part of what makes that work in the sense that a donor and a small group of other like-minded donors, they can feel heard and they can listen easily and not be distracted. But also, I think the point of what we try to do, whether it's a hike in person or a virtual meeting, is to let the donor become a hero 
for saving this piece of land, helping preserve the water we all must have to live on. Those elements of our work for all the clients that we work with, all the nonprofits, need the ability to recognize and let donors become our heroes, to be heroes for our organizations. They are heroes, that's for sure. I think also, again, the commitment, I think about the longevity of our donors. They have a relationship with us. I'm thinking of one in particular, started donating out of college, built a successful company, moved across the country, now lives in North Carolina, slowly but surely became involved on a committee. They're not just heroes. They've supported us and seen our program grow. And we've been there through all of their life. Mm -hmm. And so it is a relationship. That is the point of all of this. And I think that's a perfect ending point there too, because You know, the thought of talking about infrastructure can sound dull, but the fact of how it translates into true capacity building, that evolves through donor relationships. If we do all this stuff right, we get all these things in order, get our house in order, we are ready to go out and have good, meaningful, engaging conversations that lead to long-lasting relationships. That's what we're all about. So if you're okay, let's talk a little bit more about the database, especially related to how you use data to guide donor relations and that piece of capacity building, how essential that is to what you do. So in relation to um, databases uh, for prospect management and decision-making, I firmly believe that we need both quantitative and qualitative data. Both take substantial amounts of time to make sure that the input is there. There is no robot behind the scenes typing uh, contact reports or pulling reports. Those are human-driven actions that do require a lot of time. And so I'm a firm believer that we need the high-impact narrative story as much as we need the scientific numbers to make decisions, to drive input, to determine ROI. And I encourage my staff to block that time for that database work, whether they're a frontline fundraiser, whether they're a database manager, um, whether they work in our, our alumni engagement shop. It takes a village of knowledge, and we are only as good as our database. I also believe that uh, in order to make timely decisions and long-term high-impact decisions, we have to look at it at every angle. It is hard work. I will tell you this, if the chancellor sees a prospect as she did this past weekend and comes back and writes a three-page contact report that goes into our database, then we all can do it. And I think it's for the long-term well-being of an institution that um, institutional knowledge that Nelda was mentioning earlier on, that is how we leave that behind. That's our advancement version of an archive. Yeah, I like putting data and donor relations together because of that point you made high-tech and high-touch. We must have both. We must do both really well. The data enables you to have the numbers, and the high-touch part is the heartstrings of our message. For us, um, the data tells a story. We have donors who've been with us many years, and you can see we talk about philanthropy and development as relationship-based, and the story of the relationship is contained in your data. You can use that to inform how you will conduct your business. You can also use it 
to be sure that you're recognizing and stewarding your donors well. But the Dana tells a story and each story is different. Yet when you put it together, the other piece that a robust data system can do in terms of tracking your work is help us discipline ourselves and our work. It provides this organizational structure that allows us to really focus on what needs to be done. And so checking in on that data, how am I doing? And finally, it's a courtesy. I won't be with the organization forever. And as long as I've indicated our staff stay, that record is important for others to be able to build and grow the program. One comment I'd make, whether you love your database and just aren't utilizing it appropriately, or whether you have a critical need for um, a more best practices database, it can feel like a tidal wave coming at you. And for many shops, whether they have adequate staffing or whether they're a one-person uh, database in, in prospect management or donor relations shop, it can feel overwhelming so my only advice is we do not eat the elephant in one bite. <laughs> so set reasonable goals for database usage and database implementation or database conversion. Reasonable goals and get each stage right before moving to the next stage. An avalanche effect of just we just plow through every stage, even though we know that that first step isn't great, is not helpful. You know, it's mediocrity at best. So set reasonable expectations. Hold your staff accountable to meet those expectations before moving on to open or expand other parts of the database. Good advice. I'm interested to know how your use of data helped you prepare for a campaign. First of all, it helped me identify our donors with a lot of continuity. And we're using that data now with a program where we are actually reaching out to smaller donors, but who've been with us a very long time. And being able to pull that information quickly, and I know that sounds very basic, but to begin to analyze it too in terms of what vehicles are people using to support us? Are they responding to the newsletter? Are they paying by credit card? Are they making a gift from their DAF on a regular basis? Looking at those patterns are helpful in helping us um, work with donors, and also in sharing information uh, with them. It also, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the data tells a story. And so it's interesting. I look at groups of lists and numbers, but then I use that data to then go into the database and look more closely to think about strategy. And it's a, a way then we bring that information into our planning meetings. We use that to guide discussions about donors who may need some more attention at this time or who are part of a cohort in terms of age or region mm -hmm. or something where we can try to communicate effectively. And then I would say I use data as well to check myself. Am I doing my contact reports? Mm -hmm. uh, have I updated a strategy? How can we improve that? Are we working with uh, gift officers in terms of a reasonable pool size. I'm now able, quite frankly, with the robustness of the database to begin to look at my team and compare it to others and take a look at how not only are we doing, which is 
where I was before, mm -hmm. but now able to think about that in terms of my colleagues and peers and then reach out and say, so how are you doing this? Or to have them reach out to me in return. By the way, you seem to have a really strong planned giving element here. How have you managed to achieve that? I think a lot of that comes down to how we go about building connections as we use the data. And then also, what does the data allow us to do in building the broader strategy of the campaign, that point that you're making there? That gets pretty specific when we get down to the inner workings of every element of how someone likes to be communicated with. And that also helps us build impact reports so that when you go to meet a major donor, potential donor, for example, you might show them what is their all-time giving Yes. And you might show them what are some specific projects they've supported and give them some pretty glossy pictures. Do you do all those elements in the big campaign? We have been able to do things like that. We will look at groups of donors and numbers of years, sort of anniversary, 25 years, 30 years of mm -hmm. giving, and target special messaging. And we have heard back that for many donors, they're grateful. They appreciate. They may be really making a modest gift, but to hear from us and for them to know that we know Right. That, you know, this is their 25th year anniversary. It's tricky. It means your data has to be good. Ours isn't perfect, and I'm as guilty as anyone in not uh, uh, doing as well. But I will say at the Nature Conservancy, I, I've come into a program that I think actually my colleagues and predecessors did a great job, better than most other institutions that I've been associated with. And so mm -hmm. it's been robust. We can look at communications. Um, we can also occasionally look and say, oh, I thought they were getting the newsletter. They're actually not on that list. Yes, that's mm -hmm. important to us. We want to make sure that person gets it. That's what I mean about how data ties to donor relations, because if we're using it well, we figure out more about who they are. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the core of what we're trying to accomplish there. Okay. This would be a moment for me to be able to express appreciation to my team. I have the highly skilled, long-time staff who work carefully, scrupulously to help us run reports that are useful and meaningful. And I think, I think people who do that work are unsung heroes in this business. And so um, mm -hmm. it's really important to me that that contribution is recognized. Huge, important point. I completely agree. I say all the time that I'm so grateful there are people who like to do that work and are good at it because I'm terrible at it and I don't have the patience for it, but I see the benefits of it. Absolutely. We always end our conversations with asking all of our guests the same one question. Jamie, I'm going to start with you. I want to ask you to consider sharing a favorite example of generosity. Well, you know, I'm going to go against the tide. I know you think I should be talking about money, but we were just over the weekend meeting with our alumni, celebrating the 50th anniversary of several classes, and a few classes during the pandemic couldn't have their traditional reunions. So we were meeting with the classes of 1970, 71, and 72. And we talk a lot about time, talent, and treasure in terms of giving back, whether you're writing checks or whether you're giving of your expertise or whether you're advocating for the institution or for the nonprofit. In terms of generosity, what has become very clear to me personally over the last few years is the gift of time. And that's exactly what I told these alums um, in my remarks to them and to this alumni base over the weekend was more importantly than all of the above, treasure, talent, 
is time. And so a story of generosity for us that I see every day for us at Western Carolina University is last night, a board of trustee member who gives the gift of time to host our incoming freshmen and our regional alumni who come to welcome them in Greensboro who spends her time wrapping purple and gold napkins around utensils, who spends her time hanging a Western Carolina University flag from her home and opening her home to welcome incoming freshmen to the Catamount family. Gifts of time when our local alumni come to campus to provide, whether it's a care package or whether it is a, you've got this during exam week, rah, rah, you can do this, students, finish strong. Um, whether it is uh, an alumnus who mentors a student, who takes time out of their busy schedule to help educate, to help guide, to help train the next generation. So the gift of time is really something I am hyper-focused on, that I am incredibly grateful for. And I also think when one gives that gift, other gifts follow. Exactly where my mind was going. I love that example just for that reason, because I was thinking about actually the national data that proves that out, that the people who give you their time, who are volunteers technically, are your most likely donors. And that makes sense. You give where your heart is. So thank you for that. Share an example of generosity. One thing I'd like to say about generosity just to begin is that I have felt and found that the donors to the Nature Conservancy are some of the most selfless that I have seen across my career. To make it very specific, we don't have a building, we don't have a wing, we don't have a locations necessarily. We work with other partners and turn over many of the properties to other organizations. So you won't necessarily see our name anywhere, which means you don't either see donor names. I have a donor right here in Winston-Salem who cares deeply about water. That to me seems selfless. When you build a program or help build a program, make a gift to ensure that all of us have safe drinking water, or that fish can make their way across a dam. That's powerful. That's a powerful message about giving. Um, So anyway, that's a story about generosity um, in terms of support, but it really, I think, speaks to what philanthropy is. It is a selflessness. That's one. Another would be that we regularly, routinely receive gifts of land, and property from people of very modest means. This might be the main thing that they've ever owned in their life. A gift like that is really, again, powerful. Mm -hmm. So it's been a joy. Yeah, I think both of those examples get to the root word of the meaning of philanthropy. And not a lot of people know that, but it, it, it means love of humanity. It's a Greek translation, love of humanity. Who can not like to want to be part of that? Thanks to our guests, Jamie and Nelda, for this candid conversation today. In our next podcast, we'll talk about leadership, the most critical of our four components for building a culture of philanthropy. You've been listening to Generously Speaking, a podcast series developed by Capital Development Services, where we hear from area philanthropists, foundation executives, corporate leaders, and others who share their experience, insights, and ideas on the nature of generosity and philanthropic giving. Look for our podcast episode notes at capdev.com. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn.